Hey, oh kids, welcome to Pulp Today. I have with me here the amazing David Walker, writer, bon vivant, man about town. I know you mostly from the comic book world. I know you've done other stuff. Yeah, but comics is, you know, there's worse things to be known for, so I'm, I'm happy with it just being comics. Or, or if you want to get really almost pretentious about it, you could say I'm a storyteller. You know, that, that encompasses multiple sure. mediums, so yeah. When did you start in comics? What what point in your life did you enter a comic book? Uh, my first gig that I got paid for was uh, in 2004. Um, but I'd been trying to break into comics since like in high school. So the 80s, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and doing all sorts of self-published stuff and really poorly written and poorly <laughs> drawn things. And, um, sure. and then, you know, life, I got kind of sidetracked with another career and and at some point just decided, you know, life is too short to not at least really seriously go for it. And sure. so that's what I did. What what was the other career? Uh, I was I worked at a newspaper. I was an editor and a staff writer for an alt weekly. And um, I was I was around as Craigslist started decimating newspapers, you know, because their uh, classified sections were just drying up. And of course, it just felt like. You know, every year more people on staff would get laid off. There'd be less budget for freelancers and more work for people on staff. And I, I just sort of felt like, well, this isn't that fun anymore. You know, <laughs> let's sure. uh, let's get out. Let's get out while the getting's good. Sure. No, I get that. I was in uh, I was in movies and still am a little bit for yeah. 30 odd years. And then a friend opened a door to try writing comic books. And I have to say it was exhilarating. I recommend taking on a completely new career at the age of 49 <laughs> because even yeah. as you say though it's all it's all storytelling it's still there's some like with filmmaking yeah. there's some very specific stuff yeah. to learn and uh being kind of a student again because I had always watched films from the point of view of how are they made like from when I was a kid I yep. like when I my dad was a big movie nut so when I was 6 years old I knew who Frank Capra was uh, but I never wa I never read comic books critically at all. And when I started writing them, I literally like took Watchmen off the shelf and went, ah, nine panel grid. Who knew? Who knew? Like, I didn't notice that. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't notice that when I read it. Uh, I didn't notice that New Frontier was three Cinemascope panels a page. It's fascinating stuff. So <laughs> if you have other things that you can do and have done, it always makes your work richer. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And, and it's interesting because I'm working on a script right now, a screenplay, and, uh, and, and it's a struggle because even though, you know, film is a visual medium and, and comics are a visual medium, they're not the same medium, not even mm -hmm. close to being the same. And um, there's, there's a certain level of uh, formality in a screenplay that, that you just don't have in comics. In comics, it's... Uh, I've literally had times where I just have the artist call me up and I describe the scene to them in <laughs> right. phone. Whereas, you know, in film, you're not going to get like J.J. Abrams calling, you know, calling the writer up on the phone going, oh, so, so what exactly did you have in mind for this scene? Totally. So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I've done a couple of times I've been lucky enough to do Marvel style, which is not very writer centric. No. But I was no. doing a, I was doing a comic with, that Kevin Eastman was going to do layouts for. Mm -hmm. And I got to, and it's, you know, funny animals doing martial arts. <laughs> and I got to describing the first fight scene and I went, 
you're really going to tell Kevin Eastman what to draw here. Right? <laughs> funny animals doing martial arts. How about you just, so I called him up and I said, you don't mind if I Stan Lee this and go, Kevin, give me three pages of a spectacular fight scene. And I'll, yeah. you know, I'll write some words for it later. You, yeah, you absolutely. There's a little bit of that in movie making, but never in the spec world. Yeah. Uh, in the no, spec no. world, you got to describe everything. And we all know that when it gets to the set, the stunt arranger, the director, you know, are going to go, okay, now here's what, here's what the action sequence is really going to be. Forget that nonsense you wrote in your living room you know, <laughs> six months ago. Now we have to deal with these real sets and these real actors and what they can do and what they can't do. I think I saw a Bond script once that literally they hit a spot where it's like James Bond puts on his skis spectacular ski chase roughly 10 minutes and then bond takes off his ski because they know they're they don't need yeah. to they don't need yeah. to approve that they know what that's going to look like but anyway they, they uh, build it as they go along in comics I, I like with an action sequence often what i'll do is i'll say you know okay two pages of action uh we need to start on this beat we need to have this beat in the middle and this is how we end the, the scene put whatever you want in there and and yeah. Um, depending on the artist, some want more direction, yeah. some want less. So. You know, some want to know what's in every panel. And, you know, I wrote a, a direction of every panel for an artist named Julius Oda once. And he didn't ignore me, but he, he <laughs> embellished so beautifully yeah. that the next time I came to a fist fight with him, a judo fight, I was like, you know what? I need five panels of Lissa beating up uh, Burn. And you just, you just do that however you see fit. Uh, yeah. He just needs to be on the ground at the end, and she's standing over him. I don't care how everybody gets there. So, <laughs> you know. But anyway, Donald Goins. Donald Goins. Uh, brought you on to talk about Donald Goins. When did you discover him? What does he mean to you? All that. Um, I, you know, that's a good question. When did I discover Donald Goins? Had to have been in the late 80s or early 90s. It was shortly after I discovered Iceberg Slim. Mm. Uh, this was like gangster rap was on the on the rise, NWA things like that, and so the, it seems to me that there was always articles about like you know the black pulp fiction that's informing hip hop. Right. They would talk about uh, Chester Himes. They would talk about Iceberg Slim, and they would talk about Donald Goyne. So somewhere in that time frame, um, and and I knew I'd read the works of Iceberg Slim and and uh, Chester Himes. Sure. long before I'd read Donald Goins. And I, I can't tell you exactly what sparked me to, to pick up some books of his, but I was on a trip to New York and I was, I was walking around 125th Street. This was back before um, the gentrification of Harlem and all that sort of stuff. And there, there was a guy just selling paperbacks, you know, like for a dollar, sure. $2 each. And there were some Donald Goins books. And I knew that I was getting ready to hop on a cross-country flight in a couple days. So I thought, okay, well, um, let me grab these, these two particular books. So I got those, and, uh, and I was kind of hooked after that. It was yeah. like, okay, yeah. And, um, and, and so it wasn't going, the first Goins book that he wrote, but it was the, the first one that I had read. And, mm -hmm. and that kind of sucked me in. And, and actually, this is the book right here. This is the first one of his. Nice. I, I assume that's not the copy you bought on the street in Harlem because it looks in it's in it, really nice shape. This is actually, this is it. It was. That's it? Wow. Then. Yeah. Um, and and uh, you, you know, kept so, it in good condition. I, I'm kind of neurotic about my books. So oh, yeah. I, I, I have stuff that's you know, I have paperbacks that I got when I was like 10 or 11 years old that are still in, in, in pretty good shape. 
um, they, they, the older I get, the harder it is to read them because the, uh, the, you know, the, the print is so small, yeah. but, um, yeah. I have yeah. a lot of books that I got paper. My first job was in a used bookstore. So of course there was a lot of pilferage oh, uh, yeah. going on. Almost half the books in my collection on the inside front cover say, uh, after you've read it, swap it for credit, the book swap, Milltown, New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a lot of those, the, what paperbacks were made out of in the 70s yeah. is landfill. Like it, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I reread some of them and I, every time I, I try to reread a paperback I've had since I was 15 years old, I'm like, well, this will be the last time this book will be read. And then if it needs to be replaced, we'll be going to a bookstore to buy a new copy of it because it will fall, to, the pages literally fall to dust as you turn them. But uh, funny thing about, I've read the Iceberg Slim mm -hmm. book and on this, uh, on this series, for want of a better word, I, there's sort of the white version of Iceberg Slim, which is uh, You Can't Win mm -hmm. by Jack Black, which is a similar like criminal narrative that inspired an entire genre of writing in the same way that Iceberg did. Yeah, because uh, that's a that's amazing stuff. And I've read a lot of Chester Himes, but I've never actually read any Goins. So I am excited to hear some <laughs> Donald Goins. All right. Um, do you, would you like a little context about this particular book? Absolutely. Okay. So well, Donald Goins was actually inspired by Iceberg Slim. Mm -hmm. Goins had been in prison. He was an Air Force vet and a, and a heroin addict, and. Um, he started writing while he was in prison. He was inspired by Iceberg Slim and Slim's uh, publisher was Holloway House, which they, they specialize in what they call black experience books. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really mostly black pulp fiction. And so he landed a publishing deal with them. And in the, over the course of, I can't even remember, it was a very short time, it was like five years or so, he wrote about 14 books. Um, before he was murdered, his his murder still has yet to be solved, and he, he so he wrote under the name Donald Goins, his his birth name, and then he wrote under the name Al C. Clark, and the the Clark um, nom de plume was was Holloway House's idea because he was cranking out so many books, they and and you know releasing them one after the other, and. Apparently, part of the reason he wrote so quickly was because he had both uh, drug and, and gambling problems, so he needed sure. money. Um, we, we call that, that is the, uh, the Gene Hackman, James Earl Jones uh, issue. Not, <laughs> neither of them had drug problems. They're yeah. huge gamblers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you, when you're a gambler, you will be in any movie anybody asks you to be in. Exactly. Uh, and it's funny, my father had that problem. He, uh, he wrote very fast, mm -hmm. not really a problem but he did the Partridge Family tie-ins. Okay. And half of the Partridge Family tie-ins he wrote are credited to another author because they were like, no one will actually believe that these are all the same. Like, we're putting out one a month. It's crazy yeah. if they're all by you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so I can't remember what the... Vance Stanton was the super real-sounding name uh, that he chose for the other one. But anyway, back to going. Um, so uh, this book here is, is Crime Partners. Uh, and it is the first in ultimately a series of four books that that Goins wrote, uh, Crime Partners, Death List, Kenyatta's Big Hit, and then, oh no, Kenyatta Escapes, and then Kenyatta's Last Score, or something like that. Um, and they're they're referred to as the Kenyatta series, although this book he's not as big a part in it. Um, and they're these are super over the top 
crime thrillers, street drama, um, and and they get crazier as they go along. The, the fourth book is just uh, is is my favorite book that Goins wrote. It's also the most over the top, and and I believe he wrote it like just weeks before he died. So um, there's you can read some sort of some subtext in in what he's talking about. But um, so this book is is Crime Partners. And this was, and, and it's different enough from his, his other works. I've read, I've read his other work um, that, that these four books in particular are my favorites. The, the one thing about Goins that, that I've discovered over the years is, is everything reads like a first draft. It, it doesn't feel like he ever wrote beyond the first draft. And so some books feel a little bit more complete than others. And um, yeah, and, and there's also a, a level of repetition and and I also this is me stalling for time because reading out loud always makes me nervous. Um, but uh, we will start with chapter one of Crime Partners by Donald Goins, A.K.A. Al C. Clark. <clears throat> Joe Green, better known to his friends and acquaintances as JoJo, poured the rest of the heroin out of a small piece of tinfoil into the wild Irish rose wine bottle top that had been converted into what drug users called a cooker. His common-law wife, Tina, watched him closely. Damn, Jojo, I sure hate the thought of that being the last dope in the house. The last time your slow-ass connect said he would be here in an hour, it was the next day before that motherfucker showed up. Shrugging his thin shoulders philosophically, Jojo didn't even glance up at his woman as he replied. That's one of the few bad points you run into when your connection don't use. They don't understand that a drug addict has to have the shit at certain times. It ain't like a drunk. When Joe Chink says it's time to fix, it's time to fix with no shit about it. Jojo, you don't think the bastard will do us like he did last time, do you? She asked, her voice changing to a whining, pleading note. God damn it, Jojo yelled as he patted his pockets. I ain't got no motherfucking matches. He glanced around wildly, his eyes searching in vain for a book of matches on one of the fat, trash-covered end tables. The house they lived in was a four-room flat. You could enter by either door and stare all the way through the house. The back door led into the kitchen, which went straight into the dining room or bedroom, whichever you wanted to call it. The bed came out of the wall, Murphy bed style, and could be put up on the wall after use, but never was in this particular house. After the dining room came the front room. Here, there had been some sort of effort to gain a partial amount of privacy with a long, filthy bedspread that had been tacked up and stretched across the room, separating them. Actually, there were two different bedspreads, each nailed to the ceiling. When a person went through the rooms, he parted them in the middle and stepped through, using them the same way you would a sliding door. Here, honey, Tina said, holding out a book of matches as she extracted them from her purse. As Jojo leaned over to get the matches, his eyes fell on the roll of money in her purse. Damn, but that seems like a lot of money, he said. He stated, nodding at her open purse. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's all these $1 bills we took in. Shit, Jojo, we must have taken over $200 in singles alone. She smiled suddenly, and the smile made the light-complexioned woman look much younger than her 25 years. When she smiled, the hard lines around her mouth disappeared, tall, thin, and gaunt. To the extent that she appeared to be undernourished, she still retained a small amount of attractiveness. On the other hand, when Jojo opened his mouth, it took something from him. His teeth were rotten, typical of the person who has used hard narcotics for 10 years or better. It was catching up with him. He was as slim as his woman. Nah, baby, I don't think we'll have the 
delay we had last time. Remember on that last cop, we were short on the man's money. So I think he did it more or less to teach us a lesson. As he talked, Jojo tore four matches from the book and struck them. He held the burning matches under the cooker until the matches almost burned his fingers. Then he shook the matches out before casually dropping them on the floor. Shit, if you had to do the cleaning up, Jojo, you wouldn't be so quick to throw everything you finish on the damn floor. Jojo laughed sharply as he set the hot cooker down on the edge of the coffee table in front of him. His reddish brown eyes surveyed the cluttered floor. There was such an accumulation of trash that it appeared as if no one had bothered to sweep up in over a month. The short, brown-skinned man grinned up at his woman. I don't think as if you'd been killing yourself cleaning up. Oh, I think that's enough. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what happens next. I think the, uh, <laughs> is this where they get robbed? Not yet, but yeah, that, that's enough. That's fun stuff. And I, it's funny because I read uh, a few weeks back, I did uh, Burroughs Junkie, uh -huh. which uh, ha deals with similar themes. <laughs> well, As you might I, I think Goins' first book is Dope Fiend. And that's the only book of his that I've read and couldn't finish. Mm. It was it was so disturbing. And I like I said, I believe that was his first book that he published. And there was such a vividness to it that um, and I was like, yeah, nope, uh, I don't need this. Yeah. Everything else has at least a fun quality to it. But Dope Fiend was so morose. Um, it was yeah. it was it was almost like a. Uh, reading a, a, a scared straight account or something. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah I don't need to do this. Yeah, there, there's some of that in Junkie, the scared straight, but it's, you know, he's got such a cold and dispassionate eye, Burroughs, that it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't have that same, you're, you're mostly, uh, it's why Cronenberg was the perfect director for him, because it's mostly, huh, will you look at that? You know, yeah. <laughs> not, you know, like it doesn't rise to, ah, it's just, Huh, crazy. Worst thing you've ever seen in your life. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, you know, as I started reading this again, it makes me want to actually sit down and read all four books again. Um, there's, uh, to me, there's this sort of poeticness to it or poetic quality, I should say, to, to his writing at some point. And it, um, but it does, it, there's that desperation of, of, you know, like, sometimes when you're writing to pay the bills you do your best writing that mercenary work yeah that's that's what the stuff feels like so yeah I, uh, but i also find it interesting the well it can't be a spoiler because the books books are over 40 years old <laughs> um but so goings was a was a heroin junkie and the four books in this whole cycle are about a uh basically a black gangster who goes up against the, the heroin trade. And it's uh, it's very much like a, a movie like Superfly or, or Trouble Man. And, and for three books, you watch Kenyatta as he systematically destroys all these drug gangs and he goes after the mafia. And you, it's like, wow, this guy's actually going to clean up the hood. He's going to, he's going to get heroin out. And then in the fourth book, he just gets killed. And it's like, he, 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 I remember reading it and just like having to flip back. Oh, you just killed the guy. Right. And, and so to me, there was always this sort of, I've always read into these four books as being this almost like the, the junkies fantasy of being able to, to beat his addiction. And then by the fourth book, he was like, I, I can't do it. And so he let this sort of avatar, this, this, uh, this proxy that he had created, uh, 
fight and fight and fight and fight and then eventually lost the fight and then um of course goins died and, and what most people figure was a drug deal gone bad and um right. Yeah, so it's it's a uh, such pleasant stuff to talk about. <laughs> well, you know, there, there there is also that thing where no matter what kind of an artist you are, even if you're writing to pay the bills, you can be writing uh, wish fulfillment fantasy yes. for a while, and then you get to the point where you go, yeah, but no one has taken out the whole drug train. Like, how can I, how can I write this hopeful nonsense? when I know the world isn't like this. That's when you become a comic book writer, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, one, no, one, no one's charging in to do this. And yeah. uh, it's funny, the only pitch I've ever had rejected from a comic book company, I wrote a, I, I did a Twilight Zone, The Shadow thing. Mm -hmm. And my first idea was to have The Shadow and Lamont Cranston kind of split apart. And at the end, the shadow convinces Lamont Cranston the best thing to do with his money is open soup kitchens because it's the depression and it's the 90s. It's like beating up costumed maniacs is really not doing a goddamn thing for the people of New York City. Why don't you, you know, you're a, you're a multi, I mean, and people have made that joke about Batman for years. Yeah. He, could, he, he could open drug rehab centers if he wanted to like he actually change the world. want to make a difference. Yeah. 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 Or he could beat up mentally ill people in funny costumes. <laughs> like that's a, you know, it's uh, it's always been, Batman's always been a problem for me in that. No, I, I, I'm with you on that. And it's, it's uh, there's a lot to be said for, I don't know, maybe it's just my personality, but there's something to be said about those heroes that ultimately fail. You know, they're, they're it's that, um, that sort of, you know, Don Quixote going after, you know, the, the the imagined dragons and giants and all that stuff and and you just can't win and it's sort of um it, it can be depressing and defeatist but I, I also think it, it can be very emotionally compelling so um i i want to i would love to write a, a book like this a donald Goyne style pot boiler and and it's kind of kicking around in my head so yeah. i think I, I think i may have to do i've got a couple ideas and and um We'll see what happens. It's not like I don't have time on my hands. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I, I get that. I've started a couple of my little dream projects while I've been, you know, pencils down. And yeah. something started up again with Dynamite, so I'm not completely unemployed, but I still have some time. Yeah. For yeah. But, uh, and, and then I sometimes think maybe I should just get an addiction problem and see if that <laughs> helps. But I think selling books to publishers was easier in 74 than it is in 2020. I don't know. Well, and also the, uh, the element of no one's ever written this book from this point of view before that, you know, that, that horse has left the stable now. Uh, That's true. I don't, I, it's like, what kind of seedy underbelly could you write about that, um, that hasn't been explored that isn't totally uh, morally repugnant, right? You know, yeah. so it's, it's one thing to write a book about a pimp or a drug dealer or a drug addict. Um, right. but we're to the point now where it's like, yeah, I don't think you could write about a, a sympathetic child pornographer, you know? So it's, right. <laughs> um, right. but yeah, there lies the challenge. Yeah. Martin Scorsese made a movie where Leonardo DiCaprio, America's sweetheart 
yeah. played a guy that stole money from little old ladies and and you know in in the most lovable and adorable way possible which yep. uh, <laughs> I, I i you know I, I, it is always the question of are you uh can you write about it without glorifying it is you know that's the problem that's faced everyone that's ever tried to make an anti-war movie yep uh i i i would argue that uh wolf of wall, wall street was for me more morally repugnant than goodfellas <laughs> like you know i don't i don't think he glorified gangsters quite so much as he glorified stealing old ladies pension funds it's and it's it's also interesting too because I think that we, the, the audience will take from it, what it wants. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at like the Paul and the Scarface, which is a movie that I never much cared for to begin right. with, um, but you know there there's nothing. It's over the top and hyperbolic, but you know it's not like it has a good happy ending. So I'm not right. sure, I'm not sure why so many people, especially like within hip hop culture have embraced it. And, and like suddenly Tony Montana is this, right. um, this symbol of, of what the American dream is, is to be so yeah. high on cocaine that you don't feel when the bullets rip you apart, you know? Yeah. So. yeah and also he wants to sleep with his sister. I mean, he's not, a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fuck, but that's the thing. It's that, that's the thing you can't, uh, that's the thing you can't ever predict with the audience is they remember. Yeah, you have no control part, over it. Exactly. You remember the part they like. I mean, you know, going back to you can't win, yeah. Burroughs found you can't win inspiring and it made him a writer. It also made him want to be a drug addict and a criminal. And it's like that whole book, it's called You Can't Win. I don't think it could be more clear <laughs> about what he's saying about the life of a criminal. Yeah. You know, he says, all the money I ever made as a criminal, if I had just gotten a job and worked, I would have made way more money and not spend a minute in jail. And like, I don't know why I made this horrible choice. And yeah, people can read Naked Lunch and go, I want to do heroin. And you're like, he describes in pretty amazing detail that it's the worst thing you can possibly do to yourself. But people are, you know, your experience itself yeah, uh, yeah. is the thing that you can be a junkie for. Uh, it's, you know. it's an odd thing. I've, I've, I can't recall having really read much of anything that made me go, oh, I want to do this. Yeah. You know, um, maybe penthouse letters when I was like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, there yeah. were certainly, there, there have definitely been bad role models in my life. I mean, I think yeah. I look at how I'm dressed. I was exposed to James Bond movies a way too young age. <laughs> uh, who wasn't though, you know? I yeah, mean, no, that's uh, true. That's true. And now you can sort of look at them with a more jaundiced eye, but uh, that, that no, this is this is what it is to be an adult man. It's like really, it's not that accurate <laughs> depiction of what it is to be an adult man. But you know, you choose your life accordingly. It, it is interesting when you watch something like like a Bond movie now through the eyes of through a, a middle aged eyes and go, what am I watching? What is this? Yeah, um, right. it's 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 interesting to me because it's it got harder you know there's always there's a cycle to every bond movie you know the first one with an actor is is usually one of the better ones and then they they peter out uh you know so with yeah. roger moore by the time you get to like the spy who after the spy who loved me you're you're just in dangerous waters and yeah um, but it was really 
apparent with um with these Daniel Craig movies that it was like, you know, the odd number of ones are good. One and three are good. <laughs> Two and four were bad. Um, and so the the fifth one's getting ready to come out, but it's like, I just yeah. I can't. I, what what if this breaks the streak? Because yeah. Pierce Brosnan had had a rhythm to it that they they messed up so uh, yeah it's a it's definitely uh it's a character that i've loved for years and i i gotta say i walked out of specter and went they can stop making these now i'm good like i don't i like if this is if this is if it's going to be an austin powers movie with daniel craig i don't i'm i'm good i don't i don't need to see that i don't uh, was as you were feeling that was there a, this other voice in your head that said, I can't believe I'm feeling this yeah, way? Yeah. yeah. I, I had that. that, I had that the, the, you know, the, the, and I talk about this a lot in this series, actually. All of this stuff, all of this pop culture, pulp fiction, enjoyable stuff, it was meant to be disposable. Yes, I, I, I say that. I've been saying that till I'm blue in the face. We were not supposed to still be talking about Batman yeah. 80 years, 100 years later. We were not, we were not supposed to still, I, went, I, I was the guest of honor at a Doc Savage convention and I was like, you guys weren't supposed to keep these things. You weren't supposed to put them in the lab. <laughs> like, you were just supposed to read them and throw them in the garbage. You weren't supposed to hunt for them in garage. Like, it, and part of the, that's part of the reason that pop culture cannibalizes itself. Yeah, is Batman is just Zorro, who's just the Scarlet Pimpernel, who's just Robin Hood. Yeah, and that's not supposed to bother you because we've already forgotten Zorro and the Scarlet Pimpernel Pimpernel. and Robin Hood. Like we're we've moved on, and and it's when it doesn't ever move on. Um, that's but also but by the by the same token, it's like, and I hate to keep bashing Batman because I'd like to keep working in my industry, but. But it's that thing, it's like, I'm not, the world does not contain a new edgy take on Batman that I am interested in. I really, I really don't think it does. Like, I, I, really, I feel the same way. And then there's part of me that's like, I'd like to see it. I'd like, I, I, I'm so jaded and cynical, I'd like to see it, but I don't, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's there. Well, I think it's, I think it's, it's there, but the powers that be, you know, Batman is, is a multi-billion dollar intellectual property. You're never going to get anything that's that different or that edgy. Same thing with James Bond. I don't think you're ever going to get anything that's that different or that edgy. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it um, and, and the audiences seem to not mind. They don't, they seem to not mind, um, you know, that it's, and, and it's interesting because the audiences, one thing is the audience haven't picked up on too much yet. Um, they're, they, they, because they flip out every time a new actor is cast to play Batman, right? right. Um, forgetting how many actors have played James Bond well, and that everybody flips out whenever there's a new Bond yeah. and then they accept them. And, and so it's like uh, with, with Robert Downey Jr. As, as Iron Man, it was like, well, why don't you just get a new guy? Why don't you just get a new actor? And you know, people say, well, I can't imagine. No one else can be Iron Man. It's like, yeah, we said the same thing about Mr. Spock, and Zachary Quinto did a pretty decent job. So, well, and we're on our—I believe we're on our fourth Mr. Spock now. Aren't yeah, we, we are. There's something like that. You got you got Ethan Peck on the TV series. Yep. I feel like I'm missing a Mr. Spock somewhere, but at least you've got. Well, and the joke I always make about 
the the the, the one kind the two, there are two strains in fandom that I can't stand. One of them is the that there's such a thing as a universal taste that <laughs> if you don't think X, Y, or Z is good, you're you're a crazy person. You want to see steam come out of a middle-aged white guy's ears? Tell him uh, tell him Le Led Zeppelin is terrible. <laughs> if, you, if you want to see like that robot going into vapor lock thing from Star Trek, just say Led Zeppelin sucks to a middle-aged white guy, and it's, a, it's fascinating. <laughs> like they can't like you haven't told. It's not like you've expressed an opinion. It's yeah. like you've said gravity isn't real, and there are two planet Earths. Like it, you know, like it's they, their brains literally can't process it. But the other thing is the it, you ruin my childhood thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, much to my wife's disappointment, Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto have not come to the house to shred my William Shatner DVDs. Exactly. They, I they promised that they would, you know, that it was going to destroy everything. Uh, but, you know, in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I was like, Steven Spielberg's been making bad Indiana Jones movies since 1984, man. Like, it's, this is not a, you yeah. know, this is, this is, this is not a new experience. Shia LaBeouf certainly adds a layer of horribleness that, you know, heretofore has not been achieved but you know anyway uh, <laughs> we could know, spend hours going on about this stuff forever which is one of the reasons i love you man <laughs> great to see you i hope thanks, thanks for having me on this was oh. this was really fun i i'll have to uh work on my my reading out loud skills <laughs> i really do i i i i've done some some readings before and i always freak out i i don't have a problem with reading in my head but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a, it is a specific, I had a, I had an experience, I had, had stage fright my entire life. Yeah. And at the age of 40, like a, like a switch being thrown, I suddenly didn't care at all what anyone in the world thought about anything I ever did publicly. <laughs> and yeah. it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Uh, it allows me to sing in public and do all <laughs> other things that I never would have wanted to do. But, uh, if you want to talk about Chester Himes or Iceberg right. Slim, uh, pick a book and come back at me, man, because I'd, I'd love to I'd love to talk about it. Sounds good. I'll, I'll definitely come back. All right, man. Take, Take care. You. Yep. Thank you. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.